Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. And our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, an update on the controversy regarding Carl Lentz and Hillsong Church. We also examine how the COVID crisis has impacted Christmas outreaches, including living nativity scenes and singing Christmas trees. And we'll talk about how churches are adjusting. Also, we'll have the latest in our Generous Living series, the story of a man who died in 2015, but whose legacy of generosity is still being felt today. We begin today with a class action lawsuit filed by victims of sexual abuse at a church in Indiana. Yeah, a former member of First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, has filed a class action lawsuit in federal court alleging that she was repeatedly raped as a child by the former youth director of that church and that officials at First Baptist and the affiliated Hiles Anderson College covered up the abuse. Nanette Miles alleges that she was sexually assaulted over a period of several years by David Hiles, the son of Hiles Anderson College founder and the longtime pastor at First Baptist, Jack Hiles, starting when she was 13 years old in 1976. The civil complaint filed with the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois seeks Undisclosed damages on behalf of Miles and other individuals who allegedly were harmed by David Hiles, other First Baptist Church leaders, and officials of the college as well. Now, when you said that this is a class action suit, so that must mean that there's other victims as well. Yeah, there are. The lawsuit says that in addition to Miles, at least 10 others have credibly accused D. Hiles, that's David Hiles, of using his position of power to sexually prey on them. I'm reading from the lawsuit. Uh, when they were minors, and that uh, another quote from the lawsuit, First Baptist and the college staff members were aware of this reprehensible behavior for years and remained silent. The suit also said that there were likely hundreds of other survivors that were sexually abused at First Baptist and or Hiles Anderson College. Wow, that is such a tragedy. And and this isn't the first time that this church has been in the news for these similar allegations. Yeah, that's right. It's the second lawsuit filed against Hiles this year alone. In February, a woman named Joy Ryder, who now leads a nonprofit support group for sex abuse victims, accused him in a civil suit of raping her repeatedly in the mid-1970s. The statute of limitations had run out for a criminal suit, which is why, of course, she filed the civil suit. Miles' attorney said in a statement that by filing the case as a class action, this new case, they hope to give survivors of sexual abuse, both a voice and a legal mechanism to hold accountable leaders of independent, fundamental Baptist churches, IFBC they're sometimes called, who they say have perpetuated and covered up child sex abuse for decades. Now, Warren, our next story is another one that has been uh, years in the making. 
Yeah, it has. Uh, you might say that this story began back in 2010 when Dale Getz, an army chaplain, was killed in Afghanistan. He was the first chaplain to die in action since the Vietnam War, but the story became news last week when the U.S. Senate voted to honor Getz by naming a post office after him in Colorado Springs, Natasha, right where you are now. That's right. He was stationed not far from me at all. It's just down the road at Fort Carson. Yeah, a roadside bomb in the country's Kandahar region killed Getz and four other soldiers back in 2010. Getz had been ministering at a Baptist church in South Dakota when he felt the call to minister to soldiers. And fellow soldiers, in fact, called him a dirty boots chaplain because of his commitment to serving soldiers in war zones. In other words, of getting his boots dirty along with the rest of them. In a lengthy profile that was published in 2010 in the Los Angeles Times, uh, Getz told his wife that the soldiers who needed him most were the ones that were under fire at small exposed outposts. He survived by his wife, Christy, and three sons. Christy initially opposed his desire to become a chaplain, telling him, you're not going over there and get yourself killed. But eventually she came around. Who am I to stand in God's way? She asked in that LA Times story. Uh, he had served an 11-month tour in Iraq before going over to Afghanistan. He had been there just two and a half weeks before he died. Wow. That is such a, a powerful and important story. But I'm a little bit curious. Um, why is this a story for a ministry we watch? I mean, normally we cover Christian ministries. Well, it's a fair question, uh, but I wanted to highlight this story for a couple of reasons. First, at the time of Getz's death, only 280 chaplains were serving more than 100,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, and many troops rarely, if ever, saw a chaplain. So there's a huge need for chaplains, and I wanted to highlight that need uh, in this story. And secondly, I think a lot of our listeners probably don't know that chaplains have sponsoring church organizations who help train them and provide what is called an ecclesiastical endorsement. Uh, there's an important link, in other words, between church denominations and the military that most Christians just don't know about, but I think we should. Military chaplaincy is a tremendous opportunity for service, and even if you don't feel called to be a chaplain yourself, you can find out if your denomination is part of an endorsement process and you can get involved there. Our next story highlights a new Labor Department rule that levels the playing field for Christian ministries. What can you tell us about that? Well, what I can tell you is that the U.S. Department of Labor has issued a new rule, in fact, a whole set of rules, intended to what they say uh, will foster full and equal participation of religious groups as federal contractors. Religious organizations should not have to fear that acceptance of a federal contract or subcontract will require them to abandon their religious character or identity. That was what U.S. Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia said in a December 7th statement, that was on Monday, announcing this new rule change. The final rules won't become effective until January 8th, which is about two weeks before Donald Trump leaves office. Now, does that mean that this will only be in effect for two weeks? Is this something that the Biden administration is likely to repeal? Well, that is certainly possible. But the new rules are the result of years of work, and uh, they 
culminated in this 159-page document. Uh, so far, at least, the incoming Biden administration has not suggested that it will overturn the document. And in some ways, the new rules only clarify rules that have been in place since George W. Bush, uh, which allows religious organizations to compete for federal contracts. I should also mention that the Department of Labor received more than 109 thousand comments after the rule change was first proposed last year. So there's been a lot of input into this new set of rules and uh, been pretty well vetted. We have yet another story that involves the federal government. And this one, the U.S. State Department has added Nigeria um, to a list of countries deemed to have the most egregious violations of religious freedom. Yeah, Sam Brownback, who is uh, the department's ambassador at large uh, for international religious freedom at the State Department, told reporters on Tuesday uh, during a telephone briefing that the African country of Nigeria was designated as a country of particular concern. That's sort of the term of art they use, CPC, country of particular concern, because of an increasing number of organized terror threats uh, and terror groups that are operating in that part of the world, including a lot of religious tinged violence. That language, again, comes directly from Ambassador Brownback. Uh, you've got expanded terrorist activities that are associated around religious affiliations, and the government's response has been minimal to nothing at all, Brownback said. Uh, the terrorism continues to happen and to grow in some places unabated. He spoke on the day after Secretary of State Pompeo announced the latest designations of countries the State Department is citing for violating religious liberties. It's a list that gets published every year, including in addition to Nigeria, Burma, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, who is actually supposed to be an American ally, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. Well, Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, an update on the situation involving Hillsong Church. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, we haven't had a COVID story so far this week, but we finally have one uh, now. And a lot of our listeners may be surprised to note that this one is actually a positive story. Yeah, at least part of it is a positive story. It's the story of Faith 
Church of Lafayette, Indiana, but it's also the story of all churches that do living nativity scenes around the country. It turns out that these outdoor living history programs are tailor-made for COVID. Uh, Faith Church's Lafayette Living Nativity has been around since 1991. That's almost 30 years. They say they've had a quarter of a million visits during that uh, 30-year period, but this year they expect the number of visits to skyrocket in part because there aren't a lot of other activities that families can go out and do together. Oh, that's awesome. And that's fun. I used to do that when I was a kid. (laughs) But do you know how many of these live nativity scenes there are? Well, I don't. Uh, There's no such thing as the Association of Live Nativity Scenes, apparently. I looked around on the internet to try to find one, as a matter of fact, and couldn't. But uh, there are a few companies and fan groups on Facebook that, believe it or not, actually cater to this market. The largest company that I was able to find uh, is called Live Nativity Store, and they claim to have about 10,000 customers and 40,000 followers on Facebook. Wow. But while it's been a good time for living nativity scenes, it's not such a good time for seeing Christmas trees and other Christmas extravaganzas. Yeah, that's the other side of this story. Um, take, for example, Capital Christian Center, which is a megachurch in Sacramento, California. Uh, for the first time in 63 years, they're not going to have a singing Christmas tree at that church. Last year, about 25,000 people came to see 11 different performances of their singing Christmas tree. Between 300 and 400 people are required for the production alone, which of course includes choir members, actors, and a whole lot of backstage staff and musicians who play in a specially built orchestra pit in front of the stage. Uh, The folks at Capitol Christian Center are disappointed because there are a lot of folks who come to the singing Christmas tree concerts who would otherwise never darken the door of a church. And I should say it's not just singing Christmas trees that are taking a hit. A lot of musicians have Christmas tours that have been canceled. Andrew Peterson, for example, has been doing his Behold the Lamb of God tour for about 20 years. It's one of my personal favorites, by the way. I try to catch that almost every year. Keith and Kristen Getty have been doing their Irish Christmas tours, including stops in Carnegie Hall uh, for years. Their tours have been canceled as well. Uh, Though I should say that this week, Andrew Peterson did a live stream of his Behold the Lamb of God tour from the Ryman Auditorium, which was very cool. That was in Nashville, and it was seen by thousands, not only around the country, but around the world. Yeah, all these cancellations are quite sad. But the death of a pastor in California this week highlights the fact that the need for these cancellations is real. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Pastor Bob Bryant died on Monday. Uh, Bryant was the pastor of Water of Life Community Church in San Bernardino, California. It's a well-known large megachurch in Southern California. And one of the horrible ironies of this situation, he has been one of the pastors that had been speaking out to urge Governor Gavin Newsom to let churches open again. Warren, let's move on from COVID coverage. And I understand that you have an update on Carl Lentz firing. Yeah, in a leaked audio call obtained by uh, the newspaper, The Daily Mail, the founder and senior pastor of Hillsong Global, Brian Houston, described the events that led up 
to the firing of Carl Lentz, who was the lead pastor at the New York City congregation, the New York City Hillsong, Houston said that he'd been having difficulties with Lentz's leadership long before the recent elevations about Lentz's extramarital affairs emerged. Houston accused Lentz in the Daily Mail recording of general narcissistic behavior, manipulating and mistreating people, breaches of trust, and constantly lying. Carl Lentz, uh, who founded the New York Hillsong location in 2010, admitted in an Instagram post that he had been unfaithful to his wife, and Hillsong has now hired an independent investigator to uh, review the inner workings of Hillsong's New York City branch. We're going to take another break here, but when we return, we'll have the next in our Generous Living series. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, I'd like to continue with the story that I promised before the break, the next in our Generous Living series. Yeah, this is a really interesting story. It's a story of a man named Milton Buner, who actually died in 2015, but he left a huge legacy of generosity. Now, Buner was a guy that before he was a Christian made and lost millions in the early 1980s, sort of during that go-go era that the movie Wall Street was made about. But uh, after the stock market crash of 1987, he really reached rock bottom. He sort of dusted off an old Bible that he had laying around his house, and God got his attention, and he resolved that from then on, he was going to live his life uh, for the glory of God. He went on to found a telecommunications company that by 2011 was worth tens of millions of dollars serving the hospitality industry. But despite the fact that he was sort of back on top financially, he made a promise to himself and to his wife and to God that he wanted to die broke, um, giving away all the money that he had earned uh, during this last period of his life. And that is exactly what he did. He funded work all around the world. We've got some details of that in our story. I won't uh, tell you what he's all of what he's done here, but just say that it's really remarkable. He gave away money to ministries all over the planet, uh, really getting some ministries up off the ground and getting them started. So it's a pretty remarkable story. And you can read more about Milton Buner and see a video of him telling his story by going to ministrywatch.com. And Warren, before we go today, I want you to share some details of a few new features of Ministry Watch itself. Yeah, I will. But first, just a bit of background. You know, we write a good many stories that don't fit comfortably into the category of breaking news or investigations, but which we think are really important for ministry leaders and donors to know about. Can you give an example of that? 
Yeah, I sure can. Uh, we're coming up on the end of the year, for example, and a lot of Christian ministries are sending out emails asking for money. You may have gotten a few of them yourself. Uh, a lot of these emails promote what are called challenge gifts or matching gifts. Yes, I get lots of those, and they're still coming in. Yeah, exactly. So I wrote an article on the subject. What is a challenge gift? What is a matching gift? Are these legitimate fundraising tools? Do they actually work? Uh, I just took those questions and a couple of others and just sort of one by one answered them. That sounds really helpful. So uh, people can go to Ministry Watch website and find that story, right? Well, yeah, they can find it until it's gone from the front page, and then you have to kind of know what you're looking for or use the search engine to find it. So we decided that we wanted to create a tab on the front page that's called Four Ministry Leaders that will gather up these kinds of stories all in one place and make them a whole lot easier to find. That sounds like a great new improvement for the site. But Warren, while we're on that subject, what is the difference between a challenge gift and a matching gift? Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to ask me that. Uh, A matching gift is a promise from a donor to match other gifts that are received during a particular time period. The purpose of a matching gift is to encourage other donors to give with a promise that if they do, their gift will be doubled. In a true matching gift situation, if the other donors don't contribute, then the organization doesn't get the matching gift either. In other words, it's a gift contingent upon the behavior of others. A challenge gift is different. A challenge gift is a gift given to a ministry to challenge other people to give. The challenge gift is not contingent upon the giving of others. It's simply a way of letting donors know that they're not alone, that others believe in the ministry and they're willing to make a significant gift to that ministry. So are these kind of promotions legitimate? Well, yeah, the challenge gifts and matching gifts are completely legal and ethical. If executed properly, in fact, there's uh, a lot of evidence that suggests that they're really helpful, that they work. Uh, according to the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, I'm going to quote from their website here, using challenge and matching gifts as a part of your fundraising program can be very effective. As in all fundraising communications, though, truthful is a hallmark, as are appeals that do not create unrealistic expectations. Uh, By the way, and to repeat, I have more on this topic at the Ministry Watch website. Again, just hit the new For Ministry Leaders tab at the top of the page. That sounds great. Now, you said you had a couple of new features on the site, so that's just one. What's the other one? Yeah, every Monday beginning, in fact, this past Monday, Christina Darnell, whose name you hear almost every week on the program because she's a regular contributor to us, is going to compile ministry news into a column called Ministries Making a Difference. Uh, This is sort of like our Shining Lights articles, but they're a whole lot shorter. These are maybe just news releases or quick takes about what's going on in the ministry world. Uh, She'll often mention four or five ministries in each column. It's one more way that we can now highlight the great work that Christian ministries are doing both here in the U.S. and all around the world. Well, that also sounds like a great new service. Warren, we need to close our time together. And I'd like to remind everyone that these weekly conversations that Warren and I have are just summaries of the content that we've posted this week on the website. So if you want to dig deeper into any of the stories that we've discussed, go to ministrywatch.com. 
The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ann Steich, Steve Raby, Adele Banks, Christina Darnell, Emily McFarlane Miller, Bob Smatima, Alejandra Molina, and Roxanne Stone. And thanks to our friends at the Nonprofit Times for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.